Hi, I'm Lauren. I'm Tia. Hi, I'm Purna. And this is the Journey to Transformation. Welcome, welcome. Welcome, welcome. Today is a very exciting, special episode. I'm super excited. Me too. We've been talking about this for days. I'm very happy to be here. It's <laughs> very exciting being in your studio. <laughs> it's a mobile pod laboratory. Oh, I like it. Laboratory, that's new. Yeah. <laughs> what are we making? Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So today we are joined by Purna Sen, who has worked extensively on inequality and the pursuit of human rights. I'm just going to rattle off a couple of job descriptions because... It's amazing. Wild. Okay, a couple. Head of human rights at the Commonwealth Secretariat, director of the Asia Pacific Program at Amnesty, deputy director of the Institute of Public Affairs at the London School of Economics and Political Science, where I got my bachelor's. Oh, yes. Where Perna also taught gender and development, advisory and board member roles at organizations like Kaleidoscope Trust, RISE, and Refugee Women's Resource Project, and most recently, UN Women, executive coordinator and spokesperson on addressing sexual harassment and other forms of discrimination. I'm sorry, it's too long a title. What? Was that your actual title? No, I wanted it shorter. <laughs> <laughs> I really didn't want that title. How did you introduce yourself? <laughs> okay, I don't like long titles. Well, you've got Who something does? you've got something in common with Lauren. What was your job description, yeah, your so title before? Mine's been monitoring, evaluation, research and learning manager. Oh, well, that's you know, too much. Is <laughs> yeah. It's too much. Anyway, that was a process of negotiation between me and my boss as the job was created. Thanks. She wanted everything in there. I was like, no. I don't really like that. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, she won. So yeah, I'm Purna. I think what I'm much more comfortable calling myself as I've got older is somebody who's comfortable and happy making good trouble and disrupting. Because what I've done all my life is worked on issues you mentioned quickly earlier. I've spent most of my life working on issues that as a child felt unfair. You know, I got expelled from school for opposing sexism. And we're going to come back to that. Yeah. <laughs> and went on then to work around race equality in education but always issues around women's equality has been close to my heart but I think those early years really made it very clear how the overlap between gender and race equality was the foundation for everything else that I understood in the world and it was great when everybody started talking about intersectionality it felt like things were coming home so I've spent all my professional life doing work around inequality and discrimination and really if you're going to challenge and undo the systems and the structures that support inequality and discrimination you've got to disrupt them you've got to turn them upside down for me that's making good trouble and yes it costs sometimes it has really high price to pay so be it I mean I'm not prepared to take every risk but I take a lot of risks and that's okay that's okay yeah I love the good trouble you mentioned that to us before and we were like oh we love that we just want to do good trouble (laughs) Yeah, I love it too, but I don't claim it. John Lewis in the States, he talked a lot about making good trouble. Okay. And I think yeah, he's so right. I yes. think it's such a good term for what we do, because you have to make trouble if you're serious about making change. But we do good trouble. We're not making, we're not doing horrid stuff. We're doing really important stuff. I mean, there's a perspective issue in there, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> no, I surely think not. Some of the people we're trolling at the moment, maybe. <laughs> yeah, <are> like, <laughs> but I think that risk-taking piece is something, you know, we talk a lot about how as we've gotten older, as we've come to new realizations in our work, the risks that we're willing to take have become greater. Because I think when I certainly was younger, I did feel a very strong impulse to color within the lines, Mm. as it Mm. were. And it took me quite a while to realize the fact that maybe that wasn't going to get me doing the things that I wanted to be doing. Yeah. And I say that with the comfort about doing good trouble and taking risks. 
But I also say that without condemnation of people who don't do it. And I understand mm. why people don't do it, don't want to do it, or don't want to take those risks. And I don't hold anything against them. And I don't feel any sense of hierarchy between us. I think people have to do what they're comfortable with. And as long as we can make common cause in one way or another, that's fine by me. I mentioned to you before, and it kind of makes me reflect a bit on my own inaction. And, and now, as he was saying, I feel much more comfortable taking risks now. And I'm just curious, at school, you took a risk then and it got you expelled. What was it about you and that enabled you to do that? I think one of the strong things I inherited from my parents, both of them, was a really clear sense of right and wrong, a sense that the world could be better and that you should play a part in making it so. So mm -hmm. I had very strong values, very strong sense of equality also from my parents grew up in India that was colonized at the time, lived through partition and independence. Mm. You know, they did what they had to do. They were part of the struggle. So I think you inherit as a post-colonialist, someone who's lived through yeah. colonialism, I think they had a very clear and deep sense that you have to be part of a struggle and that it mattered. And so for me, at school, I saw do you want to tell the story? Yes. <laughs> okay. So I went to school not far away from here. I went to school in North London in a school that was still a grammar school at the time and it remained grammar and not gone comprehensive in no small part because it had the support of our MP who was Margaret Thatcher. It was for me a very conservative school. It was very old-fashioned. We had prefects. I hated that sort of system, you know, picking the kids against each other. It was quite old-fashioned in a lot of ways. And in sixth form, you know, most schools let their kids, their students at that age, go off-site if they're not in class. Well, we weren't allowed to do that. We had to sit in the library. And, you know, I was always a bit restless and looking for something to do. So I looked at the books. Same. <laughs> and there were books called Good Grooming for Girls, F is for Feminine. They were all about grooming. Looking after your hair, your appearance, dressing the way women are supposed to dress, getting a man, keeping a husband. And I was just so infuriated. But I mean, I'd been brought up. My mother had pictures of Angela Davis on the window. You know, this is not oh, wow. what I was. This is not what I was accustomed to. Nor yeah. was it part of what I wanted to to see around me. So I went and complained. I thought, okay, I'm not leaving this. I went and complained to the librarian. Said you shouldn't have these books in here. <laughs> and they said. Not our choice, the school library service picks it. Fortunately, my brother happened to work for the library at the time. So I rang him up and said, is this true? He said, no, of course not. So then I said, it's not true, you pick these. But anyway, we had a little, little, little to do about it. And so I took the books out and I was a member of the National Union of School Students at the time. And so I told them that we'd taken these books out and we were... Not happy that they, me and one other girl did this. Not happy about the books, and they held a little press conference about it. I rang the local paper and said, look, we're doing this, and they came and took pictures of us outside the headmaster's office holding the books. <laughs> uh, but I'd also borrowed some friends' uniform. We were both in boys' uniform. We had strict uniform in sixth form. It was <laughs> so we went in boys' uniform. We had pictures taken outside the school with the books. Went into school. Teacher didn't know what to do with us. Sentenced to the head teacher, who said, go away. And it was just a few weeks before our A-level, so it was horrible. Wow. wow. I mean, I had a great time. But, yeah. you know, <laughs> kids from the local school organised a protest outside us. It was wonderful. But it was oh, just wow. before the A-levels. And yeah. it was tough for my parents who wanted me to be academic. Yeah. And the other girl, Fiona, failed all her exams, which was really rough on her. Because they wouldn't let us back on the premises. Oh, wow. They put us in a separate building, let us take our exams. But the pressure was horrible. Yeah. yeah. But I learned how good solidarity feels and I learned how much it mattered to do this and I learned that I had to pay for it. But I had, my parents backed me. That's amazing. That's so strong. The early days of your community 
organizing sounds like yeah lovely from there to the united nations well a long time later. <laughs> <laughs> a long time later yeah it's amazing as well like i'm as you were talking i was reflecting on my own parents who were both in the military so very organized regimented hierarchical structures and just thinking oh gosh what would this look like i mean i was my mother raised a very wild child i don't think on purpose i think it was an accident really the influence of our parents and the people around us, our carers, really, it's huge. Matters. It's huge. I feel very privileged to be gifted such strong values and commitment to making change that I got from my parents. I think that that's really shaped me in a big way. But I also appreciate that when you're not in sync with your parents, that also shapes who you become and reaction against who they are can also make you perhaps a wild child or a rebel or whatever. Yeah. And we all get there in different ways, I think. I mean, it sounds like you took such amazing lessons from your parents in that time of solidarity and you've been able to carry that all the way through and then to this documentary which is where we kind of discovered you and we're talking about the BBC2 documentary on the whistleblowers mm. we sort of did an episode on that last week and if you haven't listened to it listen to it <laughs> please and that's where me and Tia were also really inspired by your words on that documentary Thank you. you know the power in that entire documentary was just it seeped into us we couldn't stop talking about it we haven't stopped talking about yeah. it <laughs> And here we are. And, you know, maybe you could tell us, how did you get onto that documentary? Oh, well, let me first say I agree. I think it was a very powerful program and very moving. And I think the the strength of people telling their own stories, unfiltered, without a commentary or a narrative, was very effective. Um, But I also found it very moving because there's so much tragedy and pain and harm that the program captures that should enrage us. And I think rightly it has enraged a lot of people. I got there because they approached me and said, would you come and talk to us about your work? And I think... That was partly because I had been quoted in and referred to in a number of media pieces. When I left the UN, my position was closed. And I did a piece with uh, The Guardian saying, I actually thought that sexual harassment had been put on the back burner. I didn't think it was a priority. I'd also done a whole load of other stuff where I'd been, even when I was in post, I was critical of what the UN was doing. So I think they'd picked up on that and I perhaps had been recommended as well. But uh, they rang me the people who were making the film and said, we're making a film, we'd like to talk to you about it. And we had a chat and they said, okay, would you come in and do some recording with us? I didn't know how it was end up, but I was really happy with the product. And I think you mentioned you didn't even know the other people that were going to be in that documentary. Or... I didn't know Emma, John, Jim, Tony. I knew Peter, I knew Laya, I'd had contact with her. And Kirsty last year, we'd been in touch with Martina. So mostly those people talk about sexual harassment and abuse, I knew. In some ways, we'd been in contact with each other before. But the others, no. It's fascinating. The people who you knew previously, did you know that you were all part of the same documentary? Well, it came out little by little as we were talking while we were filming, (laughs) saying, you know, because you you don't want to breach people's confidentiality. Can you tell me who else is in the film? Is it possible to to know? And so I got some names, a little bit of it. Um, But mostly I didn't find out much about it till very close to broadcast. Yeah. So that was very fascinating. It's a lot of trust you have to give over because it's all kind of unseen how they edit the construction of what the because they're building a story right so it's just a lot of trust you're having to give over and and you're so you're spot on i got very nervous about it we spent a whole day filming i didn't know if they'd use any of it i didn't know what they'd use i don't know how it would hang together when they edited it play in reverse (laughs) what what were they going to do and and i was getting more anxious and i wrote to one point said 
can I see which bits of my interview you're going to use? And they said, no. (laughs) Wow. No, you can't. That's not what we do. But what you can do is come in and see the documentary. So it was just before it was broadcast. Okay. I was able to see it. Not long before. I think maybe a week before. But after I saw it, I went, phew. Yeah. (laughs) This is okay. I was trying to rack my brains. Did I say anything daft? Did I say anything could be misinterpreted? You know. And it was a long time. We filmed in October. It didn't go out till June. So it's a long time ago. Wow. Yeah. The context. to sit with that. Yes. Yeah, and the yes, that was quite changes. tough. You're really right to, to highlight that, yeah. that, that yeah. process issue. So let's then kind of deep dive a bit more into yeah. how the UN got here and kind of what the documentary touched on in terms of discrimination, inequality, sexual abuse. How did the UN get here and why is it so hard to tackle these issues? I mean, we also see scandals from other charities, other big international organisations, and these stories materialise, I think, in places like Congo, Haiti, we've seen it, and they sort of rock up in a new scandal or something and everyone's sort of shocked. But, you know, why is it so hard to tackle these things? What's the preventative measures, I guess? Well, there's quite a lot and there's a lot of questions there to yeah, unpick. Sorry. So. <laughs> I let them all go. Pull me up if I miss stuff that that you want to talk about. I think these things happen because most organisations allow them to happen. It's not just the UN. It happens because women's, primarily it's women and girls who are targeted by what I'm as a headline calling sexual aggression. So what the UN and INGOs and others call, you know, sexual abuse, exploitation, harassment, as if they were distinct, but actually they're on the same continuum. And in most places, women's voices and bodies haven't really mattered. They haven't mattered because socially we have less power, but they haven't mattered because organisationally we're not powerful either. So we've historically not held positions where decisions are made about what is a priority and the harm that's been done to our bodies and our lives has been just that's how life is that's what the workplace is like don't make a fuss don't draw attention to yourself and some of that still sticks because when women and girls talk about what's happened to them on this dimension of abuse it's still true that stigma attaches to the person who's been abused rather than the perpetrator she's the one who went to the wrong place or was wearing the wrong clothes or what was she doing in the bar at that time you know there's always ways in which women are blamed or gaslit in terms of what they speak about so i think that's not unusual what's unusual about the un is that it sits above national justice systems and it has its own internal justice system so it's judge jury execution all in one go and while internally they will say that our investigation systems exist they're robust they're independent if they're not perceived as independent then that claim means nothing and they're not perceived as independent by many people because they are UN staff. They answer to the SG. Say I'm making a report. The person doing my investigation might be going for drinks with my boss. You know, they're all colleagues and they know each other. So I think those sorts of systems which are exempt from national scrutiny and national systems of accountability and justice become a law unto themselves. And so to whom are they accountable? So that's one institutional thing. Another is that in systems of hierarchy, talked about you coming from military family, and the UN also has a very strict hierarchy quite rigid and researchers found that the military and other very hierarchical setups are more likely to have abuse because it's very hard to question or in any way be seen to undermine those who are senior to you. Professor Catherine McKinnon worked with me quite a lot on the sexual harassment brief. She remarked something that I think is so true. You know, you don't talk to each other as names and work you do. You talk to each other as, she's a P5, he's a D1, there is JPO. (laughs) It's letters and numbers, she said. You're all reduced to letters and numbers, which are all about status. So the issue of power being distributed by status and being unchallengeable 
they create conditions in which it's so hard for those who are powerless, relatively powerless, to be heard and to be valued. And it tends to be that they are the ones who abuse, they are exploited, they are harassed, and they know that if they speak, their voice is an abused person against that of a more powerful person who might be an organizational star or bring in a lot of money or have status that piles up on top of being senior, then there's no, really no competition. And they're told that in many ways. It happens to some extent in INGOs too. You walk into a room, you know who's going to sit at the head of the table. You know who's going to make the decisions. You know who's going to wash up the cups at the end of the meeting. You know, there's so many ways in which status is signaled that I think that an organization that's so reliant on hierarchy, it's much harder in an organization like that to do more than the procedural work that is needed. The procedural work is about making it possible for people to report, doing investigations in a trustworthy way, in a timely fashion. Those improvements can all be made. But if you don't change the culture in which inequality is reinforced and it thrives and the lack of credibility of those who are powerless and how different dimensions of inequality intersect. If you're a black woman making a complaint about a white man versus if you're a... Yeah, I've tried that before. (laughs) It just doesn't fly. Yeah, yeah. And you know it's not going to work, so why would you report? And the problem is the SG has given a lot of very strong messages about zero tolerance and how this is important. But unless you change those dynamics... You're not going to create a workplace which is free of violence and abuse. And that is now a new international standard and requirement. Now, the UN is a birthplace of a lot of these standards. Equality, non-discrimination, racial equality, sex equality, disability, indigenous people, so on and so on. And the ILO has this new convention on sexual harassment and abuse at work. Why can we not apply them within the organization? It's somehow exempt. And I think that's absolutely indefensible. Not only is the UN an advocate for these standards... But it's a birthplace. It's where they were created and negotiated. And the UN holds others to account. It says, come and report to us. We're going to monitor you. <laughs> but who's monitoring them? Who's guarding the guards? We were really frustrated watching a documentary because I was like, you're the standard holders, creators, but who's in charge of you? I think we were kind of joking around about taking the UN to the International Criminal Court. (laughs) (laughs) Although that takes a long time as well. It does, but the ICC uses the same structures, posts, and I'm working with the prosecutor at the ICC and I've got a lot of time. Can you put us in touch? (laughs) For what they're doing, and I think he's very serious about tackling these issues. But most international organisations tend to recreate those conditions unless you go out of your way to say, I'm going to disrupt this social normality and I'm going to do it differently. And mostly that's not a priority for most leaders. Yeah, we did a gender thematic review for an organization across the, you know, their global programming. We always came back to leadership and management mm-hmm. and how they're replaying problematic social norms within the organization. And I remember they came back to us and said, this is not what we were this is, no, we, we wanted you to tell us about like our programs and them over there. And we were like, yeah, no, we're talking about all of that because that over there is because of you over here. Yeah, it starts with you. And that's the thing that we kept coming back to is that you yes. need to look at norms and cultures within the organization, within your institution, because that's where all your sticky stuff is happening. You know, we had some really hard conversations in that project. And for me, I was like, I don't understand why this is so controversial. Controversial. Yeah. I mean, come on. Very strange. You know who you are. (laughs) (laughs) No, I completely agree. And also the othering there. And actually, I think about the times when I've seen 
huge UN compounds in the middle of South Sudan and Kabul and the status that's replayed in that relationship in terms of salary, in terms of who they hire, in terms of who's on the kind of outskirts of that compound. So the closeness in which that power is reflected, I think that that othering is completely a myth. The other thing that just came to my mind was the member states, where do they come into this as leadership, as people who dictate the culture at the UN? Well, in theory, they are the body to which the UN is accountable. So as members of the General Assembly, everything goes through them in terms of what happens at the UN. And I have to say it is mostly pressure from outside that will cause change within an organisation at the UN, which is well-established, which is revered across the world, which is a magnet. A lot of people want to go and work there. So in a sense, there may be a feeling that we don't have to do anything because we're going to carry on and everything's going to be okay. But member states, I learned a lot from member states when I was doing the sexual harassment role because they're the ones that alerted me to the delegates' lounge issue. Oh, okay. I find that surprising. Because they were saying some of our interns have been harassed there. They have been asked for sexual servicing. I didn't hang out in the delegates' lounge. I used to go for meetings and that, but never to go and drink or anything. So I went to observe after they told me about this. And that's what I spoke about in the documentary. I saw it happening. I'm picturing you there with a newspaper <laughs> and dark Sat sunglasses and a big hat. <laughs> <laughs> at one end and watch. I said, oh, okay, this is happening. The member states also raise these issues. They're the ones that have pushed hard on sexual exploitation abuse. In New York, there's a group of friends for the elimination of sexual harassment at the UN. They have... What a lovely name. Mm-hmm. Group of friends. I know, it feels hum- like I yeah. want to be part of it. <laughs> <laughs> it is a good name. They have lots of group of friends on different topics. Oh, okay. Yeah. So ah. this was a new one on sexual harassment, and it's amazing. It got a lot of membership very quickly, held events that were incredibly well attended. There's a lot of interest amongst member states in this. A lot. And I think we have to hold that in mind because that's quite important. But the other thing I want to give a lot of credit to is pressure from outside and some brave staff from within the organisation. It's no accident that there was a sudden flurry of activity and new policies, new procedures, more investigators after Me Too. The UN was embarrassed about the cases that came to light. Of course it was. There was demand from member states that what are you doing? You know, Sweden stopped money for UN AIDS after the Martina Brostrom case. I think they're quite aware of what's going on and they want to push for change but the politics of the UN mean that no state is going to focus on a single issue. There's lots going on, there are positions to be vied for and lobbied for so it's complicated and there are trade-offs made. I actually think there is a lot of interest amongst a lot of member states, not just the big donors but the G77, the member states from the southern part of the world, the global south, who know that their staff and their colleagues are being abused and who know that peacekeepers in their countries are doing incredible damage to their people. So I do think there is a will there. I do think there's an interest. The question is, how do we make the most of that and ensure it's not contaminated by other dynamics? When we're talking about the single issue things, Mm. I think it's very easy for other agendas to seep into that process. I prefer the word contaminated, though. But it's also true, just on that point, that Finland has just stopped funding for the UN. We shouldn't write off the possibility for states being quite active and determined on this issue. And I suspect the more that this goes on and they feel the less is being done about tackling the problems, not just the surface, the more likely it is they're going to take really big steps like that. I wonder what the recipe is for member states wanting to stick their heads up and say, hang on, I have a lot of respect for the Prime Minister of Finland. I don't mind that she, goes she was out partying. <laughs> I don't mind. In fact, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I like it. I'm glad. Party on. But what is... 
Because it can't be that they don't have anything to lose, right? So what's the motivation for member states to say, no, we're not doing it? Is it just our staff? Is it just, what would you say it might be? Well, I think it's a number of things. It certainly is our staff because they come back and tell us what's going on and we don't want them hurt and we don't want them harmed. One of the things I think mattered a lot was that the nature of leadership and diplomatic core is a lot more female than it used to be. Oh. Okay. I think women understand what sexual abuse is about because most of us have been there in one way or another. Most women have experienced sexual harassment. So this is not a theoretical abstract thing that they're having to deal with. It's stuff they know about and many of them have held on to and kept quiet about and don't want that to happen anymore. I also think in the UN, in member states' ministries, there are people who care and they care that young women like Georgina in the documentary, Girls in Car, we could go all over the world, unfortunately have been raped and exploited and left with children and no financial support by peacekeepers, by humanitarian workers. I think they're outraged. Not everybody, but enough of them that I think that it will drive more and more action. Yeah, and I think the situation in Congo with the peacekeepers is coming to a bit of a head. So I hope that outrage continues. And it's hopeful to hear that states in the global south are also feeling this outrage because we want them to hold the UN and, and northern states to account on a lot of this. Absolutely, so, yeah. absolutely. And Kenya was, in fact, one of the founding members of the group of friends. No. Isn't that lovely? Yeah. I'm really excited by this group yeah. of friends. <laughs> You talked a little bit about it before, but I'm thinking about how you create pressure inside out, outside in. What is that dynamic of creating that pressure for change outside in, inside out, combination of the two? I'm reflecting something that you said before about feeling that you can reform from the outside. Talk to us about that. So there's a whole discussion about what makes social change, isn't there? And I actually think effective, lasting social change happens at a variety of different levels. Yes, everybody talks about leadership. There's a fascination with leadership these last few years, you know, authentic, et cetera, et cetera, leadership transformation and so on. So leadership matters. You do have to have people at the top saying, this is what we're about, this is what we're going to take seriously, and this matters. Now, the SG is doing all that. Yes, they yes. are saying that. So, yes. exactly, this is my point. So leadership matters, but it's nowhere near enough, and it can be superficial. So for me, the important bits is what lies beneath that and what lies beyond it. Beneath that is the good stuff you're talking about, those who are prepared to speak out. Many aren't because it's too dangerous and too risky, and they feel they'll lose their jobs or they'll get labelled and they'll never get the career they're looking for. Understandable. For those who do speak, and it's interesting, the people who've contacted me since the documentary and saying, look, can we do ABC, but we don't want her name anywhere. Let me tell you about what's happened since the SG had this parity in his management team. It's been terrible for women since then. Anyway, mm. so they are there, but that's not enough. I think change happens when you've got a combination of those different factors at play. I talked about Finland withdrawing money. I'm no great fan of defunding. I think it's a very crude tool. And I think it can lead to reaction and defensiveness in a way that can be more intense than other methods. But I also think if other methods don't work, then you have to withdraw funding. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like this just came up yesterday and the UN has just thought, oh, should we do something about it? This has been going on for decades, decades. 10,000 people in Haiti died unnecessarily because of the cholera outbreak. We don't know how many women and young girls have been raped or abused because nobody's documenting that. And mostly they won't talk about it. Because it's too embarrassing, it's too shameful. They get stigmatised and ostracised. So we don't know the scale of that, but we do know that it's happening. 
It should never happen. And I think organising those outside, especially those who understand the systems and how they work, what the possibilities and what the limitations are, have to work closely with those inside and have to bring pressure at the top to say, yeah, these words are great. Zero tolerance is a great idea. What does it look like in practice? And the other thing for me is about upending those power structures because mostly still the voices of those who've been abused do not count. It would be much better... And I did advocate this for this when I was at you. If we had systematic methods through which we could prioritize and learn from survivors and victims so that they shaped what is done in their name rather than being told, oh, look, we fixed it for you. Mm. So I think systematically there has to be a way in which power and authority and credibility is given to those who have been most silenced, not voiceless. I don't like to say voiceless because nobody's voiceless. It's just whether you're listening to them or not, who have been silenced, who instead should be those who shape what is done to make them. They know why it doesn't work. They know what happens. They know why they won't report. They know all those insidious little ways in which cultural norms that you talked about work against them. Let them set the standards for the work. Mm. Doesn't happen. Gosh, I feel all sorts of emotions and feelings hearing you say that. Just really angry and sad and really, yeah, emotional when you're talking about the 10,000 people that died of cholera. That, I think, was a really emotional piece of the documentary for us. And then how many people have been raped that nobody knows about and those voices, you know, are not listened to. Yeah, I feel really sad about all of that. And I'm curious about, you know, whether the documentary is obviously putting survivors first, whether hopefully that would have some kind of influence, but also how much NGOs and other organisations we've worked with don't put survivors first in terms of what they're designing and, and what they're putting forth. And, you know, we always have spoken about putting beneficiaries first, but it's just not really happening right now. I don't like the language of beneficiaries. I know it's the popular way to talk about those yeah. who are at the receiving end. I prefer to shift that a little bit because beneficiaries are those who benefit from the lovely engagement and benign activity of those at the other end. I prefer to talk about them as rights holders whose rights need to be respected yeah. and fulfilled. And I think that changes the dynamic. But we are embedded in a lot of development work, humanitarian work, peacekeeping work, in colonial ways of thinking and being. And so we still have this idea that those who are poor, of course it's them over there, are not clever. They don't know what needs doing. They need us to come and save them. <laughs> and we have got all the solutions, haven't we? And we've got the money. So that gives us the power to tell them what to do. And until we really tackle that colonial model, I think we've got a hell of a long way to go. Our episode where we talked about the documentary was called Defund the United Nations. (laughs) (laughs) And I do think that defunding and divesting from institutions is a useful tool. But more than that, the thing I'm in favor of is consequence. Because what I don't see are consequences. And one of the things that we talked about is that, you know, maybe some people get sent home. Seems like people get promoted. And can we have some consequences? What does that look like? I agree with (laughs) you. Like I said, I'm not a great fan of defunding. I see why it works. So I'm not going to say don't do it. And I'm quite in awe of organizations who are prepared to put their money where their mouth is. But I'm much more in favor of meaningful consequences, like you say. And that should be, we're going to hold you to account. You're not going to get a second term. We will not fund a particular program, perhaps, rather than not funding the organisation. I'm I'm very critical, but I'm still a friend of the UN. I believe that the UN is necessary and it can do really important work. And I believe in multilateralism, but I think an organisation at the UN has to be the best it can be, and it's very far from that. And so our voices raised in criticism should be heard. I would have loved the SGO, his spokesman, to say to us, 
instead of saying, oh, we've got zero tolerance, there's no problem, nobody has any adverse consequences for speaking out, they should have said, we're absolutely appalled by what we've seen in this documentary. Why don't the 10 people who are in this film come and talk to us and advise us on what we should be doing? Isn't that a much better response? I mean, it seems so logical. <laughs> it's just logical. Right. So consequences for me are also about humility. Yeah. We don't have all the answers. We're prepared to learn what will it take? And we will learn from those who are at least powerful because they've been at the sharp end of what we do wrong. So I think those sorts of things are meaningful. And I think the states can push them and hold them to account towards these sorts of things happening. They're not stupid. They need to call out when things are patently said that are not true. And they don't. Yeah. And because I think they're all invested in this diplomacy and the rather unhelpful sort of roundabout of posts and positions and who gets what resolution through and trade-off for what other resolution. The water's too muddy. It's too dirty. Yeah. I don't feel great now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Things change. Okay. And our involvement is what's needed to make it change for the better, right? Yeah. The example I often use, especially when I get unhappy and with people who are unhappy, <laughs> is to compare the lives of my grandmothers and my daughters. They're absolutely mutually unintelligible. My grandmothers were married at 11 and 12. They had children by the time they were 14. They didn't get to go to school. I could catalogue their lives. My kids, in their 30s, unmarried. They have their mother's name, not their father's name. They are hugely well-educated because they chose to be. But I think, especially when we get knocked back, and especially now when there's so many things in the world that look like they're going the wrong way, I think that big trajectory is one to hang on to. Hold on to it because change happens, and it happens because people like us are prepared to make it happen. Not because somebody wakes up one day and says, oh, this isn't right. I'm very powerful. I'm going to change it. No, it happens because people like us take risks and raise our heads above the parapet day after day. I'm going to have to make that my ringtone because as an American, I often feel that our politics and our rights are backsliding. <laughs> Your country is causing people a lot of worry. <laughs> yeah, that. Including, obviously, within the country, but yeah. beyond too. Yeah, I mean, hence why I'm here. <laughs> I, I haven't lived in the States in 15 years. Something like that. <laughs> I have been resident for a while because I could see where it was going. <laughs> but that's a very hopeful and optimistic place. Yeah. Hang on to it because if we're not optimistic, we can't do this work. It's because we believe the world can be better that we do this work. Absolutely. Can you talk to me about that tension though? Do you ever feel that kind of tension as a critical friend, knowing the ways that people are being victimized and knowing it very deeply and knowing how many people aren't saying what's going on? Mm. Is there a tension of being a... I guess my question is, why aren't you just critical? How do you hold on to being a critical friend? How do you stay in solidarity, having intimate, deep knowledge of the things that people are suffering within the institution? I think if I didn't think there was a role for the UN, I would be in that position. Okay. Some days I'm probably more of a critic and less of a friend than other days. <laughs> or weeks. Maybe more of a friend. But I think that's a complicated mix and it's not a static yeah. position. I think if I didn't believe in the role of the organisation and I didn't believe that we couldn't create it now, I don't think international politics would allow for something like the UN to be set up anymore. So where would international and multilateral work, how would it happen? Maybe one day in the future I'll be convinced that the UN's not going to do it. I haven't got there yet and I don't really want to get there. Yeah. So I will try and fight that. But I think I'm more invested in the UN being the best it can be. But some days I absolutely rage and cry about the horror stories and the pain. And it's indefensible. There's no way that should be justifiable. But when people just give, you know, glib slogans... That's justifying it. 
Mm. That's excusing it. Not good enough. We have to hold them to account. And I think things like the documentary and media coverage help those of us who are agitating, help the organizing that's going on. We need that stuff to be aired and we need more people to understand what's going on. What troubles me is that those who are profoundly against multilateralism use this to say, get rid of the UN. And I don't think that's the answer. Unless you deal with those cultural, another organization could be exactly the same. Would you keep diplomatic immunity? I'm not keen on diplomacy. <laughs> I think if you could have diplomatic community used responsibly, and I don't think it is, mm. with external scrutiny, then perhaps. One of the bits of lobbying I tried to do when I was in my role on sexual harassment, that long title at the UN, was to try and talk to member states and say, will you make a pledge never to invoke diplomatic immunity in any case of sexual abuse, aggression and so on. And initially, because there was a lot of women, a lot of women said, oh yes, of course, that's a great idea. We'll go back and talk to Capital and see if we can get purchase on this. They all came back and said no. Wow. They all came back and said no. And I think they were genuinely disheartened by that. But these are the sorts of things we need to push on. This is why I'm saying it matters who's in the diplomatic core, because I think you get more traction with people who understand the problems. And it doesn't with the class stuff and the post-colonial power issues, but the gender stuff is at least a start. Mm. And if we get more variety in the diplomatic core and perhaps more scope for that, but no, diplomatic immunity is a really dangerous thing if it's allowed to be used without scrutiny and without accountability. Because if you have a system that's about hierarchy, you inevitably have stars and then you can invoke immunity to protect your stars rather than be led by the substance of the issue. Mm. And that's where you can become rash and unscrupulous about how it's used. And that's why I believe scrutiny is really important. And those sorts of voluntary pledges, because nobody's going to rewrite the convention which set up diplomatic immunity. And okay, maybe you need to be able to park somewhere to have meetings where you're not normally supposed to park or <laughs> maybe stuff around LGBT where it's criminalized and you need to do I mean... I can see some cases where you want yeah. to be exempt from local laws, but I think they must be much more well-defined than they are, and I do think they have to be subject to scrutiny. And I think there's some areas that are no-goods, because absolute immunity only applies to the top two or three grades of the UN. Everybody else has functional immunity, so specific to the job you're carrying out. Nobody's job is to commit sexual abuse. So why is it ever invoked? So tell us life after the documentary. What now? What sort of, how are you continuing to agitate the space? You've got some big things you're working on. <laughs> so I was really keen not to let this documentary be the end of the story. I think it's one stage in the story and a really important one because it's reached a much wider audience with things that they didn't know. So what I did was to think about making the most of this moment to give momentum to the work to end sexual harassment sexual abuse and sexual exploitation and I'm really clear I'm talking about ending not mitigating or reducing because the SDGs talk about elimination why should we talk about anything less and the SDGs happen because women organize and said this is what it's going to be and finally the states listen why would we step back so what I did was I sort of drew on everything we'd done before and what I'd learned from from survivors and I put together a call to action which says this is what we need we need an independent survivor driven initiative which documents what we know isn't working and which sets out a plan of work that needs to be done to change things at the UN. I don't want it to be sort of a UN initiative of costing $10 million, taking five years <laughs> with a lot of people and a big bureaucracy and so on. I think it should be a small initiative done within 12 months. It doesn't have to be horrendously expensive. But for me, the core is that 
it has to be survivor driven and led by people who know what this is about, not people who want a job from the SG or who have paid for something so they're owed a favour. Three constituencies that I think have to be on this group are victims and survivors, people who understand issues of inequality and power, and those who understand international organisations, how they work, what their dynamics are, what the possibilities and limits are, and how to get over them. So I've been putting this call together, and I thought it would be particularly powerful if it came from all of those in the documentary who spoke about any form of sexual aggression. So we, I shared it with them. They asked for some edits. We did all of that, and they put their names to it, which was really pleasing. I got a little too excited and started tweeting about it immediately because <laughs> I thought this was a really big thing. And then I thought, there's still people who aren't part of this, and I don't want this to be all from the north. And I was able to speak eventually to Georgina in Haiti and to Jeremy, the journalist who exposed the cholera and the sexual abuse patterns in Haiti, and both of them. And I didn't expect Georgina to because it's very difficult for somebody in her position but they both put their names to it so that was even more meaningful for me we've got the signatories there's about nine ten people who did it initially and now we're asking for others to join the call and once we get a bit of noise around that i'd like to try and get funding for this panel to happen after the documentary bbc newsnight did a feature on the program and what was happening as a result one of the questions that journalist Seema Kotecha put to Stefan Dujaric, who is the SG spokesman, was, it's been proposed that there should be an independent panel. Will you listen to their recommendations? And he said, yes. <laughs> so I Just think, play that back. Yeah. <laughs> you said this. <laughs> so we've got a commitment. Let's see what happens. We've got a commitment to listen to the panel. So let's make the panel happen. Let's let it have the character and the makeup that gives it credibility and is accountable to those who've been harmed. Mm-hmm. Let's see if the member states will fund it. Let's see if somebody else will fund it. Let it really focus very hard on doing this work for under a year. And then the next battle is getting its recommendations taken on. So how can people find out about this call to action? Where can they learn? How can people help you? Yes, wonderful. It will be up online at pernasend.org.uk, 23rd of August. Yeah, when we'll release this episode as well. Oh, okay. Okay. And we'll put that link in our show notes as well. Fabulous, thank you. I will have it up in one version or another by then. I'm (laughs) not going to give this another three weeks. (laughs) So if people want to join that, and if they want to go on a mailing list, which we'll do as a result, then we can become a community pushing for this group to happen, following it, supporting it, publicising it, and watching for and agitating for its work to be taken seriously. Excellent. Hopefully we'll rally the troops. Thank you so much. That would be wonderful. And Georgina and the others, hopefully, not just will feel better, because I I do think that matters, but also that it won't happen to others. This is what it's got to be about. Yeah, 100%. We said, you know, one person was enough to call for action, but the many over the years, I mean, we'll be there with our signature and everyone else that we can get there. That would be wonderful. Thank you for your support (laughs) and for publicising it. I think it really helps. As people who want to organise and want to be agitating for good change, using our platforms to help other people. Mm. Yeah. I mean, our podcast is Journey to Transformation because yes. we think that there's potential for transformation. <laughs> so, potential. Yeah, I mean, we complain a lot. But yeah. also... <laughs> but it's okay because complaining is saying, here's the problem. Yeah. yeah. And the next step is, what do we do about yeah. it? Yeah. And we try to bring people on yourself. who can help us understand <laughs> what to do, where to go, give us a bit of hope. So... I, I took a little dip, an emotional dip there in the middle, and now I'm feeling a bit more hopeful. <laughs> yeah, it's okay to feel that. I mean, we're dealing with horrible stuff, yeah. and it hurts, yeah. and it's okay to hurt. Yeah. But I think it's okay also to reach out to each other and say, let's put ourselves back together and keep going. Yeah, yeah. group of friends. Group, group of friends. Of friends. <laughs> <laughs> Can we be a little group of friends? Yeah, <laughs> I like that. <laughs>
Another question that's come to my mind is, what would you tell someone who wants to join the UN? Because we see jobs advertised, people still want to work for the United Nations. It's got that status, it's got money, it's got value for some. So what would you tell someone who was starting out and wanted to work for the UN? So I've answered this question so many times when people say, you worked at the UN, how do I get there? Right. So there's a number of different things I say. One is that the UN's role is about going out and getting involved in the world to change it. Now, you can either start your life at the UN and bring your understanding of the UN to the world, or you can be out in the world for a bit and bring your understanding of the world to the UN. I actually think the second is much better. Mm. So don't go straight to the UN, straight from university or whatever else you're doing. Uh, live a bit, understand the world a bit and understand what's working and not working. Secondly, more recently, I have said, okay, I need to be upfront with you. <laughs> I will talk to you about how you get in, but I will tell you that I have a lot of reservations and you should look after yourself if you get in because A, B, C, D is what's going on. Mm. But I'm also straight about a lot of people get into the UN because they know somebody or they know the system or their parents are in the UN or were diplomats. So there is this sort of inbuilt class cater of people who are there and it's quite hard to crack that and they say to me how do I crack that I said well I actually don't know because <laughs> I saw job advertising I applied I didn't know anybody I didn't have any backing and at my level you tend to have national backing to get those positions but I did it on my own so I actually can't answer how do you negotiate that but I do think you see, this is why I don't want to get rid of the UN, because I understand why people want to go there, because the UN does important stuff. Mm. It has a valuable role. It just needs to be much better than it is at looking after its own people and those who aren't in the organization. So I'd say, yes, go if that's where you want to go. Please don't go there as your first job and stay there for the rest of your life. And understand that UN's way of doing business isn't the only way of doing it. And if you get there, look after yourself and know who to trust. Find out quickly who you think you can trust and hold them close. And don't believe that there isn't life outside the UN once you've got in, because there is, and sometimes it's better. <laughs> like now. Yeah. I think that's a great place to leave off. Yeah. <laughs> sure. There is a world after the UN, <laughs> and it's a good one. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. So thank you so much for reaching out. A, this has been a great conversation, but yeah. also your involvement in pushing for change as we can move forward. Is, it really matters. Yeah, we feel really strongly about it. This is just the beginning. Just the start of the journey. <laughs> to transformation. Absolutely. Exactly. Hey. I'm Tia. I'm Lauren. I'm Purna. And this has been the Journey to Transformation. Thanks for listening. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Journey to Transformation. Leave us a five-star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Journey to Transformation is written and edited by us, Tia Rogers and Lauren Burrows. Our music comes from Praz Canal.